Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Welcome to the University of Bath. I'm Nick Pearce. I'm the uh, director of the Institute for Policy Research here uh, at the university. And it's my, my great pleasure this evening to be able to welcome you to this lecture by Professor Timothy Mitchell, um, who is the IPR global chair this year. The university has a, a global chair scheme. And before I introduce Tim, and ask him to deliver his lecture. I'm just going to pass to the Pro Vice-Chancellor of Research, Jonathan Knight, just to say a couple of words about that scheme and about uh, the welcome we give to academics coming here. Thank you, Nick. Yes, um, Professor Jeremy Bradshaw was unable to be here this evening due to conflicting appointments, and he just asked me to say a few words about the Global Chair Scheme. And uh, he actually gave me some notes, but I'm not going to look at them because actually I have something to say about the Global Chair even without the notes. Um, one of the pleasures of my job has been that it gives me the opportunity to meet and interact with really outstanding researchers within the university. And the Global Chair Scheme gives the entire university community the opportunity to extend that pleasure outside of the bounds of our university and beyond the UK by attracting and supporting some internationally leading researchers to come here and visit the university. And Professor Mitchell is one of those people. Uh, I am never ever disappointed by the quality of people that come on this program. Once you start talking to them, you're just talking to people that think the same way as you. It's always a pleasure to have them here. The Global Chair Program is run by the International Relations Office. Uh, we have a, um, I, th I think it's called the Global Chairs Women's Program uh, and a standard Global Chair Program, both running, running simultaneously. Um, we have had and will again have Professor Kirs van Leeuwen uh, from the University of Utrecht visiting us shortly. And we are right now also hosting the Global Chair, Professor Ramses Mina of the National Autonomous University of Mexico, UNAM. Thank you very much and enjoy the evening. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks very much. Right, well, um, the first thing to say is I suppose it won't have uh, escaped your notice that there's other rather important events happening in the country this evening. Um, uh, and I don't mean the banning low letterboxes bill that's in front of the House of Commons uh, <laughs> tomorrow, a private member's bill that will be of some benefit to post office men and women, but perhaps less important than Brexit. But um, the vote isn't apparently due until about 8.15, 8.30. Um, so it means you can give your full concentration to Tim le Tim's lecture. Uh, it gives us time for Q&A, and then you can head off to the pub, make your dinner, do whatever you want to before you see the result coming in. Not that, uh, by all accounts, it um, uh, is going to be a sort of knife-edged thing. I think we can all probably predict the outcome. But um, just to say, uh, you know, we have until um, 7 o'clock. Tim is going to deliver his lecture, and then we'll open it up for some discussion. And... It is, as Jonathan said, the Global Chair Programme is for very distinguished people uh, internationally in academia, and Tim is definitely one of those. His work, um, his seminal works, Colonising Egypt, Rule of Experts, and more recently Carbon Democracy, uh, have contributed very substantially, not just to the literature on Egypt or the Middle East, although they're important in that regard, but also how, to, how we think about the development of our modern world, the development of how we think about things like the economy, our representations of the economy, how we think in particular also about the relationships between our, the physical world around us, the matter uh, of the world that we inhabit, our infrastructures, our fuel sources, our food supplies, all these things and how they interact with uh, and are shaped by and co-shape our politics uh, and our social worlds. And some of these distinctions that people make between the natural and the social are things that are problematized and historicized uh, in Tim's work. So it's incredibly interesting uh, to listen to him speak tonight. 
And in particular, to speak on an issue which also talks to our future, our future on this planet, uh, as a species having to reckon with uh, the potential of catas catastrophic climate breakdown. So what Tim has to say to us, I think, I hope this evening, will not just be from the perspective of an historian and political theorist, but somebody who can help us understand some of our contemporary challenges. Tim, you're very welcome. Over to you. Uh, thank you, Nick, and thank you to the university for this uh, really great privilege to be here. I want to ask two questions. First, thinking, as Nick suggests, of the prospect we face of um, catastrophic climate collapse, how can we bring the future into politics? How do we deal with the fact that we seem to have no effective way to make the future count as it should, to give it its proper weight? <laughs> Not only for that one great issue of our contemporary politics, but also thinking of events tonight in Westminster, how do we deal not with long-term futures, but even immediate futures, which appear extraordinarily difficult to calculate? Uh, again, we seem not to have developed forms of politics, uh, whether the long term or the short term, that adequately be, are able to weigh and calculate the future. We seem to live under a form of political life continually imprisoned in the present. The second question I want to ask is, how do we bring corporations into politics? What? Aren't they already there far too much? Isn't there far too much influence of business, and particularly large business, in shaping decisions and outcomes in our political life? Yes. But that's the corporation thought of and treated one particular way, as a certain kind of private actor, something with a set of interests that are uh, private to itself. Um, I'm not interested in that aspect of how to bring corporations into our politics, but rather, if you like, how to make, how to make, it, how to make the corporation public. The corporation, which I'm going to talk about a bit this evening, is a complex legal political form. It has quite extraordinary privileges, powers, abilities. Yet it's treated as if it was one more private actor, one more interest or set of interests in our politics. So when I say how do we bring it in, in the sense of how do we make it public, I'm interested in how do we open it, its forms, to public debate and to input, and in particular to think about the purpose of a corporation, of a business firm, its goals, its values, its interests, in ways that don't take those as either for granted or as obvious in some sense uh, because of some narrow financial or economic calculation of interest. So two questions, and actually only one answer, because um, my answer to the two questions is going to be linked in the following way. 
I don't think it's actually the case, even though I started with this problem of how we bring the future into politics, that we ignore the future in our collective life, in the way decisions are made in politics. I don't think we fail to calculate future consequences or keep it out of political deliberations. I think, on the contrary, that for some time, in fact, over the last century or century and a half, we have developed an astonishing machinery for bringing the future into our lives. Not just to estimate or uh, try and plan in some remote way what the future might bring, but actually to directly work upon the future and to draw parts of it directly into the present in ways in which they can be enjoyed very unequally now rather than later. This, this astonishing machinery, this mechanism, this time machine, one could think of it as, I think is all around us. I think is absolutely central to our politics and to our daily lives. But I don't think it's properly understood or accounted for in our political theory, in our unwritten or written constitutions. And that machinery is the modern corporation, the modern large business firm. I think one of the key steps to a better politics of the future is a better understanding of the actual machinery of the future that we live with and that is all around us and part of our lives today. Now, to unpack that argument, I'm going to have to spend the next 45, 50 minutes um, just telling you the entire history of capitalism, um, which uh, is hard to do in that time. Actually, I'm not going to tell you about the history of capitalism, and I'm not going to use that word, because I think that word is going to be misleading. And of course, it's a word when one, those who write about the history of capitalism usually have in mind a, a history stretching back uh, 250 years to the roots of the Industrial Revolution, or even 500 years to the, the great global expansion of European power or, or, or earlier. And I, want, I don't want to think about um, the corporation, the business firm over that period. One could. It had roots in all those processes. I want to think about just the last 100, little over 100 years, 150 years, because it is actually in the late 19th century that what we think of as the large managerial uh, business firm uh, comes into being and takes on much of its present form. And I think in distinguishing this last period from a longer history of something called capitalism, I mean, good company, because um, that phenomenon, the emergence of, of the large business firm, it happened after Marx had already written two volumes of Capital. And in the writings that were pulled together as the third volume of Capital, Marx, the great theorist of 19th century capitalism, he said, this, this new phenomenon, this is the abolition of capitalism, or abolition of the capitalist mode of production. That mode of organizing collective life and profit and, and inequality that he had diagnosed by the study of the factory system, the textile mills of 19th century Britain, was very different from what emerged later in his life in the form of the modern joint stock company, 
And this, to him, was a critical difference because the business firm that emerged emerged as his entity based upon the selling of shares um, to a diverse group of stockholders. Marx's view, what was so different about that, is that what these firms are selling, what they're dealing in, is fictitious because they're selling the future. What they're selling is, what the share represents, is a claim on future earnings. Those earnings haven't been produced yet. Um, so the capital that is being realized in the stock markets of London, Hamburg, New York, and so on, is fictitious capital. It's not real capital. There's some relationship to the future that is entirely new that he um, thought about but did not extensively analyze in his writings. I think Marx is useful because he grasped that great difference that the modern business firm represented from earlier histories of capital. But I think his word fictitious is very unhelpful. Um, because one has a way of grasping the future doesn't mean one is working with fictions. Um, because, of course, the consequences of that grasping of the future, especially if you have some way of controlling that future in the present, are actually very real. And I think even today, many theorists of capital, thinking back over these periods, and even thinking today about the era of the financialization of capital, which in some ways we can think of and I'll suggest as a sort of reenactment of that history at the end of Marx's life, uh, still turn to this notion of the fictitious, of something that is not quite real. Um, and contrast it to the real productive life of, um, of ordinary capitalism. I don't think that that distinction is a useful one, and I'm not going to use it. Um, instead, what I'm going to give an outline for you, rather than a history of capitalism, is a brief account of capitalization. And I'm not going to give you a history. I'm not myself, properly speaking, a historian. And I'm, I'm going to instead draw and try and contrast three moments from the history of the last 150 years using this notion of capitalization, of a certain relation to the future that takes on a distinctive new form beginning 100, 150 years ago and being transformed, I think, at two key moments in our history, in our collective history since then. So the three periods I want to touch upon the first one, roughly speaking, 50 years or so, the 1870s to somewhere in the 1920s. These are very approximate dates and processes overlap, but schematically can help. Um, it's the period of the rise of the modern business firm. Um, and the modern business firm, as it comes into being, the large joint stock company, is predominantly concerned with one industry, and only one industry, which is um, railways. Um, this is most marked in the United States, where I think something like 90% of the firms traded on the New York Stock Exchange in the late, late 19th century are railway companies. And those that are not are associated with the building of the, of the transcontinental railways of that period, telegraph firms, um, uh, iron and steel firms, and so on. Um, <clears throat> The... Um, the second period I'm going to look at 
in a moment, is, is one around the middle decades of the 20th century. And I'm going to associate those middle decades, um, and I'll deal with that more briefly, with the appearance of something entirely new, not associate, not, not that, that, that is not the history of the business firm, but I think has to be understood in terms of the problems, the crises, and, and the politics that emerged around this powerful new organization, the business firm. And that is the emergence of something somewhere between the 1930s and 1950s of an object uh, in the work of economists, principally, that no economist even believed to exist before the 1940s or so. That new object of the middle of the 20th century was the economy. And then in the last part of the talk, I'm going to move briefly to the present and think about how this understanding of how we got to where we are can help us think about politics in the present. As I say, I'm not interested in giving you a detailed history of this. I'm interested in uh, the ways we conceptualize our, our contemporary political world um, and uh, the ways we think of the forces and the organizations that our world is made up of. So <clears throat> let me deal with that first period. Um, roughly the 1870s to the 1920s, when one first sees the modern managerial business firm and the forms of um, the stock market, uh, the selling of shares in large businesses that we now take for granted as part of our world, and that one business <coughs> at its heart, the railways. Now, where Marx saw this as some new fictitious, implying something sort of flimsy and not real, I would say it was actually the complete opposite that is the key factor explaining the difference between that and the world Marx knew better of the mid-19th century. Um, there is a new kind of durability that enters the socio-technical world in that period. There are new materials. There are new ways of building and constructing things um, that have an astonishing effect on the extent the size, the scale, but also the duration of the technosphere, of the world that humans build and transform around them. One could look at this in some detail, but I'll give you one quick example. Um, steel has been around um, for a long time, but has had been, been so expensive to produce that it's used mostly only in very technical forms, like making uh, tools. Um, but with the Bessemer process, it becomes possible to manufacture steel on a vast scale much more cheaply. And so railways, which previously were built only with iron rails, are now built with steel rails. Iron rails were so brittle that they had to be replaced every 12 months. Um, steel rails last 10 years, 20 years, eventually 30 years or more between replacement. Um, that's an example of what I mean by a new scale of technical durability um, that one could explore in many other areas, um, concrete and particularly reinforced concrete, so the use of, of Portland cement to make concrete and then reinforcing that with, um, with, with, uh, with iron bar um, is another example and is enormously important in that period onwards. Many others. Um, what that means is that when one is launching a new venture, let's say the building of a transcontinental railroad in the US or the construction of a vast new ship canal in Egypt, the Suez Canal, or new dams on rivers, 
use these new materials. Um, once, once building a project that has this unusual durability compared to other kinds of business ventures. Now, other businesses might have lasted uh, over time, but in ways that required um, either constant renewal or degree of uncertainty, but for reasons that are only partly technical. Um, a business can be set up that can be reliably expected to return a revenue not from one year to the next, but from one decade to the next. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, something like the durability of the materials out of which it is being constructed. Now, that durability of the business is, of course, a promise of the durability of the revenue that that business will return. Um, and what it becomes possible to do, and the mathematics, the economics of this are worked out gradually over the period between the 1870s and the early 20th century, is one can capitalize that future revenue. Right? One can take, one can calculate the value of the freight, the passengers, uh, and so on that will be carried by, let's say, that railway or that canal uh, or that other. These are mostly large infrastructure projects. And um, having calculated that future value and discounted it for degrees of uncertainty, inflation, and so on, um, calculate its present, the present value of that future revenue. One can then sell that present value to those interested in having a claim on it. And that's what the stock market is. There's a common misunderstanding that stock markets are about raising revenue for companies. They raised revenues through, through debt. Um, they, they raised investment funds through debt. Uh, by and large, the selling of shares was a process of the entrepreneurs they actually had a better name. They didn't call them entrepreneurs in those days. They called them undertakers, which has <laughs> interesting connotations. Um, the undertakers would sell on this venture to, um, to those who bought the shares. That's what I mean by capitalization. And, of course, it's a common term in finance today, that one can take any future revenue stream and calculate its present value. And then one, of course... Can, um, can actuate that present value by selling it on to others. So one is selling claims on the future. Lots of things have to happen besides iron and steel and concrete um, to make this possible. Uh, so, for example, there have to be significant legal changes which are gradually worked out in the middle and later part of the 19th century. You have to transform what a share actually is because up until that point, companies might have sold shares on a small scale or had shares within the family that had founded the company. And those shares were understood as a claim on the physical assets, largely, of the business. There might be a bit added on for what was called the goodwill, the, the customer base of the business. But the share was understood in legal terms as that um, claim on, uh, on the physical assets of the business. Uh, it gets transformed into something totally new. It basically becomes a form of money. It becomes a form of value in itself that can be traded, um, can be evaluated, um, can be passed on, and it's actually an inheritance law more than anything else that this transformation in law is worked out. Now, if you think about that change, 
the durability that makes it possible, the legal changes, and other aspects. You can see that, it, to put it simply, there are three parties to this new relationship. There's the undertaker, um, the entrepreneurs who, who organized the venture. Um, there are the predominantly often uh, very small shareholders who are persuaded to buy into this venture to the future. And then the third party is those in the future. Because uh, those in the future are those whose lives are being capitalized. Because they are people who will uh, travel on railways, to stick with that example, who will uh, ship goods on railways or consume goods that have been shipped on railways, um, or who work on railways. And one of the things that will gradually be established in law and in other ways over the decades that follow is that that entrepreneur or the shareholder to whom he has transferred this claim on the future, the, the, the value of that claim and the ability to establish and protect that claim going forwards so that in the future, that third group, the users of the railway, the workers on the railway, those who ship or consume goods on railways, will carry as a cost the maintaining of the value of that share. And increasingly, in the understanding of corporate law and corporate governance, we will eventually arrive at the situation we are today, where shareholder value is the overriding, if not only, concern in the taking of business decisions. But that has to be worked out over several decades, and it's not clear, and court cases have to decide it. Um, I think we can think of this, then, in a variety of ways. One way to see it is that the business firm has come into being as a method of taxing the future. It's not literally a tax, because we use the word tax for um, fees or, or payments imposed by governments, and um, this is not being directly imposed by a government. In fact, prior to this point, and over the previous century or so, there's only been one organization that can effectively tax the future, and that is the government, and the modern state comes into being. Of course, of let's say the 18th, 19th century, is this one organization that, can, that is durable enough to politically establish a claim um, such that it can take loans and repay them through its tax on the future. And now, one way you can think of what the rise of the modern business firm is, is this sort of privatization of the right to tax, this privatization of the ability to claim future revenue in the present. Um, so, the corporation, this thing that comes into being that Marx can't quite get his head around and thinks of as something fictitious, it does indeed appear as this remarkable thing, this, this sort of time machine, this way of building an entirely new relationship to the future, um, where under the right um, material, technical, legal, and political conditions, you can set up an apparatus, an apparatus of capture, if you like, that is capturing revenue not in the present, but from the future. Now, it's being captured 
and the right to that is being sold by the undertaker to the investor. So the person who really runs off in the present with that captured future is the undertaker. And I like that word. Um, the person in today's parlance who uh, issues the IPO and makes great profit out of that initial sale of the, sh of the shares. Now, there's a more complex history that unfolds because once you've set up this relationship to the future, uh, that future is a little uncertain and so the, 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 the shares themselves can rise and fall in value and there can be then speculators who come in and keep that market liquid and make money out of that future falling in value as well as increasing in value. So it's a little more complicated than I've sketched out, needless to say. Um, but the, the, the essential points are that there's an entirely new relationship to the future, that it's engineered out of this heterogeneous mix of the technical and material, the legal, the political, um, and that this is an entirely novel way of capturing the future in the present. <coughs> of course, in its early decades particularly, um, and again, there are echoes of the present that we can see in this earlier period, it's a thing of incredible instability. And those of you who know the history of this period um, through the late 19th and early 20th century, it is a history marked by financial panic, crash, um, uh, collapse again and again periodically um, uh, and that while there have been previous moments and disasters of financial panic often associated with earlier forms of this to do with colonizing corporations and their schemes um, it becomes an almost regular part of not just national life but because these um, uh, these forms of uh, constructing the future are being done on a on a continental or a colonial imperial scale, um, these are crashes that reverberate around the world. Um, there's a series of them right through, and then um, in 1906, 1907, the biggest one ever until 1929, uh, the panic and crash of, of, of 1907, uh, which interests me because it actually began in Egypt. Um, political... Um, uh, the first sustained political revolt against the British occupation of Egypt was in 1906, famous political incident, um, which caused the resignation of Lord Cromer, the, um, the man who had governed Egypt um, as this British sort of quasi-protectorate since 1882. And um, his resignation and the larger awareness that British um, presence in Egypt might be limited uh, leads to a crash of all this um, sort of speculative control of the future that has been organized um, in Egypt. In Egypt, it's not mostly railways, although Egypt has a lot of railways. It's to do with uh, building dams and irrigation canals and then the speculation in land that is made possible. I should add, I'm talking about the business firm, but one could also talk about land, property, cities in a very parallel way. Let me... Now, one final thing about this world that I've just sketched. It is a colonial world. Uh, it is a world um, where many of these ventures are happening around the world. Investments in railways, whether in Egypt, in Argentina, in India, in canals, in irrigation schemes. Um, and of course, I, the, the US example, which is uh, itself a, a, a colonial one because the, the 
the, the European established American state is, is busy completing its colonization of the continent and railways are absolutely critical to that. Um, so there's a technical durability but there's also that doesn't work without a political durability. The building out of new political structures that will um, ensure those returns, that will provide the system of law, property, uh, finance, markets and so on on which this new technology of taxing the future is going to rest. Um, so that's capitalization. That's the birth of a, of, of a new form of relationship to the future. Um, uh, uh, and that is how I'd like to see what the modern business firm, uh, the, the, the modern um, publicly traded business firm comes into being. Uh, for. It's a very different account of the, the standard accounts of modern business firms that one reads in business history. Economics are very different. They're either, oh, these things were so big they needed a large organization to run them. That's backward. Because you could put in place a large apparatus, you could do this thing that was so big in time. It's got, that story has to be told the other way around. You built big railways because the opportunities of this sort presented themselves in new kinds of ways. Nobody needed um, any particular railway or anything else. Um, of course, uh, although I'm giving a slightly negative picture of what the modern business firm was, um, I don't mean to be entirely negative because, of course, once you've put this kind of legal political apparatus in place, then it becomes an enormous spur to innovation and to wealth creation. And you can begin to justify this sort of cannibalizing of the future on the grounds that ultimately it will pay for itself because by building railways and other kinds of large infrastructure pro projects, you will create more wealth in general and that future that you are taxing now will benefit from um, uh, the costs that are being imposed on it, the costs that it's being made to pay, uh, this transfer of wealth from the future to the present is in the interests of the future. And of course an entire view of the relationship between generations emerges around that argument. And this is the view of the world as one of development, of growth, of infinite growth. Because provided growth is infinite, is always going to continue, then you can justify um, this mode of relating to the future because what you're taking the future is always going to be only a small part of, um, of what the future as it expands will have because the future is always going to be one of expansion. Um, and it will always be argued, and it had to be argued in the first place, that these ventures are undertaken in the public interest. Um, I talked at the beginning about making the corporation public. It was public in the interest because uh, through at least the first half of the 19th century, there had to be a public interest in Britain, America, elsewhere in order to justify the creation, in order for the act of parliament that you needed to set up a corporation with all these extraordinary powers over the future that a corporation um, enjoyed. That notion that the corporation exists for a greater public interest is, of course, going to be completely lost in the course of the 20th century. Let me move to my second period. And the second and the third are going to be a little shorter. Um, 
the middle decades of the 20th century, the period roughly from the 1930s to the 1970s. I mentioned that um, this world that came into being with the modern business firm was an extraordinarily unstable one. People lived this world of, of panics, of crises. Uh, economics as a, as a field of knowledge uh, became very occupied with uh, business crises, with what were called business cycles, um, trying to predict these ups and downs. Um, and key institutions were put in place to try and manage uh, this. One of the most important, I mentioned the crash of 1906, 1907, which starts in Egypt, goes around the world, and ends up in New York, was a set of proposals which were articulated through a certain reading of Egyptian history and what had caused the initial crisis um, to establish what becomes the Federal Reserve System, some um, quasi-public uh, management of the creation of credit. I don't have time to talk about this topic in relation to the creation of credit, but at the same time as we have modern business firms coming into being, we have modern banking with this privatized ability to create credit. Um, through the credit, it extends to, um, to establish the value and the actual currency of shares and other forms of um, uh, transfer of wealth from the future. So there's a whole history of money and credit here. And the Federal Reserve System is actually set up as an attempt to make sure that as this new power to capture wealth from the future is used, it's only used for beneficial and public and productive purposes. And that's, it, it's not what the Federal Reserve becomes, but that's its initial, uh, what's initially envisaged as its purpose. So one has a world of crisis. Um, and repeated crisis, culminating, of course, in 1929 in the Great Crash, and then um, the Depression that follows. Out of which, in the discipline of economics, which has not predicted or been able to make sense of this world very well, there emerges a new object. And one finds, for the first time, um, economists beginning to talk about something called the economy. Part of the reason I got interested in this history of the corporation is because I had previously made this quite surprising discovery that nobody talked about something called the economy before the 1930s. And I wanted to know, well, what was that world before the 1930s? And what was the economy, in some sense, an answer to? And I think, in, in large part, it was an answer to this unstable and destabilizing world of, of share prices and crashes and, um, and, and the political instability that went with that, including, of course, where history took a different path from the rise of fascism and so on. Um, so, to deal with that uncertainty up till that point, before this idea of the economy appears, there's been this proliferation of numbers. And it comes directly out of it, because as these entrepreneurs, these undertakers, sell their ventures, they produce numbers to justify the claims that this is indeed going to be 10 years or 15 or 20 years worth of revenue that you can buy a share of now. And the numbers are often very unreliable. And so you start getting the production or people involved in the attempt to produce more reliable sources of numbers. And one of them is a key uh, railway engineer and then publisher called Varnum Poor, Henry Varnum Poor, who publishes a journal called um, the railway engineer, and um, initially as an engineering journal, but then increasingly this move from engineering to finance 
to not just record the engineering breakthroughs that are making possible this transformation in infrastructures, but also to actually try and figure out what is the actual cost per mile of track on, and then how do you take into account the gradient and the use of coal or other fuel and so on. More and more uh, sort of integration between forms of economic calculation with engineering calculation. So this engineering journal publisher becomes at the same time a financial publisher and um, he turns the journal into an annual publication of all the data, engineering and financial, about railways. Um, and it's called um, Paws Manual of the Railways. And he publishes it right through in the 1920s. Um, and then he extends to include other stock prices. And then he gets together um, with, a, with a competitor who has produced a similar publication of other kinds of business and has set up a firm called Standard. And you have Standard and Poor. And you have together the development of the first indices of stock markets. Now, um, you have to calculate what an index is and how you generate it and so on. So uh, there's already this proliferation of numbers, stock prices, indices of stock prices, uh, consumer prices, out of which it becomes possible to sort of picture and calculate this new object called the economy. Um, now, of course, the word economy existed before this period, but economy before was a, was, was a process. It wasn't a thing. It had those connotations that we now associate with the word economize. So um, uh, economy was, was either frugality or it was prudence and the prudent management of affairs. And out of that notion of prudence or good management, you got the notion of political economy, which was not the politics of the economy. It was the, the economy, the good government of the polity. Um, but that was an old meaning. And it takes on, they add the definite article, the economy, and uh, they start referring to this new thing. What are they referring to and what is it different? There have been many attempts to sort of, before this, to account for the sort of totality of um, material life, to calculate things like national wealth. Um, but they, they had not been successful. There would just seem to me too many things to calculate. And um, you ended up counting things twice if you counted your own earnings, but then what happened when you paid your servants? You counted those earnings again. There seemed no way to put these numbers together into a whole. But this world of business has come into being. And the thing about businesses is they have to keep accounts. And as um, business income tax is introduced, they actually have to keep those accounts formatted in a particular way. And uh, from those business accounts, one can actually put together a different picture of the material world. It's not a very material picture because it's mostly about finance. And it's putting together all those accounts of different businesses and looking at the circulation of funds in and out of all of them and coming up with a figure for national income, some total, what we daily call GDP, put together out of all these new forms of accounting that this world of business has produced. And it is national income that is the calculation and the total that enables people to envisage for the first time something called the economy, not just to envisage it, but to work upon it um, through government policy and so on. Um, so one's no longer trying to count wealth or even older notions of well-being, of 
of, of, of health in general, of a population and people. One's actually just trying to calculate how much these funds circulate through business accounts. Now, of course, the collective world is not only businesses. It's also uh, private individuals who live in households. That problem is solved in the uh, construction of national accounts by treating every household as if it was another business firm running its own national account, own business accounts and paying so much for housing and so much for, for, for other things and having um, a set of expenditures and a set of income and so on, and treating the whole world as if it is made up of business. And out of that, you construct this picture of what becomes the object of 20th century politics, the economy. So... <clears throat> First of all, one sort of simplified the world into something countable and manageable. Um, and government becomes more and more uh, concerned in the course of the middle decades of the 20th century with the management, famously in Bill Clinton's re-election campaign. It's the economy, stupid. That is what, um, what politics is about. One's done a vast simplification, but one's done something else. One's constructed this this object of politics by, as it were, naturalizing, taking for granted, seeing as normal and inevitable the business firm. Everything is a business firm. Government starts to do its accounts on the model of a business firm. Business firms account that way, and even households are assumed to have uh, income and expenditure on the same model. So this, this thing, the business firm, that was this great problem and source of crisis of the early part of the 20th century is in fact just embedded as um, both natural and normal, but also as just equivalent to ordinary human beings. We just account for them all the same way. They're just so many units that make up the national accounts um, uh, and form the, the sort of basic substance of our collective well-being. Um, <clears throat> It's funny because at the beginning of the, well, of course, one of the key architects of these new ways of thinking was the economist John Maynard Keynes. And um, at the beginning of the process, before he's published the general theory and thought through some of the conceptualizations that's going to be very important for this, he writes a famous essay published in 1930, right after the great crash of 1929, um, uh, uh, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. Um, you may, this has been referred to recently, particularly after the, the, the financial crisis 2008. Um, and he says, look, yes, 1929 was bad, but we should take the long view. And the long view is that um, the capital stock, he didn't have words like GDP in those days, but capital stock is increasing, has been increasing for about a century and a half, at about 2% a year. That is to say the number of houses and uh, railways and all the other forms of, of physical capital grows about 2% a year, so that in 10 years it has increased by 50%. So if we think, yet in 1930, if we think of our grandchildren in 100 years' time, almost today, it will have increased eightfold, roughly. The productivity of labor is also continually increasing and has been for um, 50 or 100 years. Um, let's say it's growing about 1% a year, you will get the same kind of compound effect. The same amount of labor will produce um, uh, so much more in a decade and um, a compound of, uh, amount more in 100 years. So what he said is that if we understand 
these, these processes. A hundred years from now, in the time of our grandchildren, um, our standard of living will be not just a little bit better or twice as good, it'll be eight times as high as it is today in 1930. It is unimaginable, he said, that there could be any further need for economists at that point. Um, economists to deal, to deal with the problem of scarcity. There will be no problem of scarcity a hundred years from now because that amount of increase in material uh, wealth and in standard of living and physical well-being could not possibly do anything other than free us from all material constraints and present us with a completely different set of problems. He said we will all be working three days a week and the great problem of collective life will be what to do with leisure. It didn't happen. And that's about part three. Uh, briefer still. Because, of course, for a while, something like that did happen. For a while, between uh, the late 1930s and uh, the 60s, early 70s, something like those levels, not only of growth, but of decreasing inequality, were a hallmark of, of collective politics um, uh, in Britain and America, and um, uh, subsequently, of course, in, in, in other places. Um, we're under more familiar territory, thinking about the most recent period of our collective life, and I don't need to rehearse that. One way to think about it in terms of this story is that this preoccupation with the economy and its growth and how that growth will be shared actually loses the significance it once had. GDP is still a measure of things, but of course this new object is marshaled that is the kind of uh, Doppler, the kind of... Uh, the, the, the doppelganger, the kind of um, the other of, of the economy, which is the market, actually re-envisaged in very kind of simple and totalistic terms. Actually, it's not about the economy. Politics is about the market and the rules of market. And you know that history. Um, and of course, eras of growth and what seemed like limited less, limitless growth become eras of austerity, standards of living for... Um, a very large part of the populations stagnate um, or barely increase. That world that Keynes imagined of uh, endlessly improving um, prosperity uh, does not happen. Not only that, of course, but many of the gains of that period of the economy, of that collective management, um, seem to suddenly begin to slip away. And things that had become established as collective rights through uh, very serious political organizing, things like a pension, uh, a guaranteed pension in old age, um, decent health care, um, schooling, uh, universal access to higher education. Uh, more and more of those things that had been established as rights become uh, reduced, taken away, apparently unaffordable now, um, and lives become in many ways, increasingly precarious and unaffordable. We have many ways of thinking about this experience uh, of the last three to four decades, and of course one of them is under the notion of financialization. Um, the growth of all kinds of new forms of indebtedness that financialization brings, that people cope with um, uh, declining access to what used to be shared public goods by taking on debt, um, student debt, uh, second mortgages for their homes, and so on. Um, 
so there's a familiar account of this process. But I want to actually think of it in terms of this argument about capitalization, about relationships to the future. Because another way to think about the most recent period we've lived through is, of course, that future that was swallowed, that was captured, is the period in which we now live. And the justification for that future, for that cannibalizing, that swallowing of the future, was, well, the future will be bigger. There will be more to share. In the early days of the investment in kinds of large-scale infrastructure. Now, that wasn't always necessarily true even then. But, of course, it became less and less true as these modes of extracting revenue from the future spread from large-scale infrastructure projects, railways, then oil and other energy industries in the early 20th century, through across to even manufacturing itself, which had always seemed too short-term in the past to uh, manage according to this principle of capitalization, even that, and ultimately almost any aspect of life um, uh, becomes open to these forms of capitalization, of taking potential future revenue and turning them into current system of payments. Um, so one way to think about um, our recent predicament is that we are actually the heirs to that history that I have sketched. We are that future that was swallowed. Um, but I think um, another way to think about it is the way in which it has spread beyond infrastructure, beyond even large-scale industry, to almost every aspect of our lives. Um, now what is capitalized in our lives is not just uh, particular large apparatuses of revenue capture, uh, like a railway, but even the smallest parts of our lives, um, our own homes, our own housing, through the dependence on endless forms of housing debt, um, life itself through the debts. Uh, one takes on for education and then particularly in the United States for health care, uh, the new ways of attempting to fund um, one, one, one's, aid, one, one's retirement and so on. So one way to, to say that is that if railways were the great durable process on which you can count a series of payments in the late 19th century, early 20th century, Today, the durable process on which you can count for a series of payments is, is the individual human life. The, the making of the indebted man, as Lazzarato has called it, is this turning of every individual life into this system of payments of debt that has to be taken on, um, not because you're building a great venture for, for, for the future, like an uh, infrastructure project, but because you actually have this obligation to try and sustain your own life, to feed, to house, to clothe, um, to educate, and to, to remain healthy. And that series of obligations then can be something uh, that, that can be capitalized. Um, the durable process is our own lives that is subject to this cannibalizing of the future. So let me conclude. I started by asking how can we bring the future into politics, and at the same time, how can we bring the corporation into politics? And my argument is that we already do those things, but not in ways that 
are recognized and understood. That is to say, we have this astonishing set of machineries, financial, corporate, and others, for working collectively and concretely on the future, valuing it and extracting that value and uh, consuming it very unequally in the present. And we constantly build these complex technical calculative arrangements with um, extraordinary powers to make these claims on the future. Um, it still is the case that I think the main apparatus of capture is the large business firm, but it actually takes many other forms which we could discuss. So this thing, the corporation and its other forms, are not just a sort of natural way to organize complex kinds of business. Um, it's a particular arrangement of management, investment, ownership, labor, as this kind of time machine. Um, I've stressed the extraordinary power of that, but thinking back to the moments when it was subject to crisis and collapse, I think it's important to think um, of its points of vulnerability. And if I can end on a slightly more optimistic note, let me give you an example of that. Um, a lot of my recent work has been on the history of oil energy. And um, uh, that's obviously an industry that is particularly pertinent to thinking about the future and the kinds of politics of the future. Um, large uh, oil corporations are among the most powerful political actors in our world. But one of the interesting ways in which they are potentially vulnerable is because their power um, and above all, the value of their shares is dependent on a very specific calculation of the future. Um, not long-term scenarios so much, but immediate sense of how much oil there is still in the ground, what the price of that oil will be, and how much of that oil they will be able to uh, produce. Some of you may be familiar with the work of a group in London, Carbon Tracker, that works on that vulnerability and takes apart the accounts, the annual shareholder accounts of, of, of BP and Shell and others, and say, well, this valuation, this calculation of future earnings is based on uh, this amount of reserves and this calculation of what percentage of those reserves they will be able to produce. That amount of reserves corresponds to six degrees, let's say, of global warming. In other words, Rather than just criticize oil companies as being um, not just unconcerned, but possibly dangerous for the future of the planet, show how that is built into the very calculation of the share price, the very production of the future on which that share value depends. And work at that level of the time machine itself, as it itself open, works and try to open up that vulnerability to other kinds of calculations, calculations that have to take account of um, alternative kinds of futures and alternative kinds of politics. Now that's one small, perhaps promising um, uh, example uh, of the question, of an answer to the question of how to bring the future into politics. Thank you. Uh. Thank you very much, Tim. That was um, fascinating, um, really fascinating. We have time now for some um, questions and, and some debate. I'm sure there's plenty that can be 
asked on the basis of, of, of what Tim has said. Um, I'll start with Graham. Graham Room. Thank you for your talk. Thank you. Um, so you started and you ended indeed talking about these corporations in terms of the capitalization of future earnings. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, as Keynes reminded us, those corporations face a world of uncertainty. And this is one of the endemic challenges for capitalism. Does it then follow that those corporations have to extract by force and coercion the uh, future earnings that, 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 that in a sense from your account you might well develop an account of corporations in terms of their coercive and predatory face and if they cannot do that by themselves but in turn need to rely upon state the state apparatus that in turn also uh, means a strong critique from your position of the um, the dark side of the state in, in securing that coercion of the future. So I'm a bit unsure where you sit between those two. Thank you for the question. Um, absolutely. Um, uh, I, uh, I, I mentioned in passing that um, uh, this world of the capitalized future built through um, the, world, the new world of big business from the late 19th century was a very distinctive kind of colonial world. Um, uh, uh, the, the, the history of the relationship between the building of the transcontinental railroads and the American colonization um, of the West, an amazing book by Richard White uh, called Railroaded that has recently given us a, a much more detailed history of that is, is, is very, very stark. Um, and of course, it's, it's, a, it's a history of, of violence, of the um, extermination of native peoples. It's also a history of ecological catastrophe. Um, uh, in many cases, building railways which turned out not to be needed, but of course, the, 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 the shares had been sold and the undertakers had run off at that point. Um, that runs through many other examples, the history of um, the oil industry, my own field of the politics and history of the Middle East and the role of um, oil companies in facilitating or organizing the overthrow of governments, the encouragement of forms of dictatorship um, is, is, has been told in, in some detail. Um, and again, uh, always some mixture of, of the use of violence or the organization of what seems like legitimate forms of violence and particular modes of state power that exist to um, allow those apparatuses of capture to continue to work. Um, but I wouldn't want to give only that picture. Um, and I, I think it's, it's not necessarily politically helpful to see it only in those terms because um, it is important to acknowledge that um, these, um, uh, in all their multiple forms, and not just the, the largest forms of, of big business of the late 19th, early 20th century, the railway companies and the oil companies, but others, there was always this claim that this was about growth, this was about human improvement, 
um, this was about building a, a better world and therefore the costs, um, uh, whether in terms of extraction of wealth from the future or in terms of other kinds of political costs were in the service of that larger um, goal. And um, they did indeed build uh, energy industries um, and uh, many other forms of infrastructure of the modern world. Um, they did so in a particular way by um, uh, making themselves appear absolutely necessary to that unfolding process of economic expansion. One of the things I tried to show in my book, Carbon Democracy, was that the oil companies claimed that they went to the Middle East to find new sources of oil to produce to allow uh, the expansion of industrial society that depended on this new energy source. What they mostly went to the Middle East to was to prevent the production of oil um, because the threat to them, to them as apparatus of capture, was always too much oil uh, so that they would not be able to um, uh, uh, maintain the extraordinary gap between the cost of production and the price at which they could sell it. So one doesn't have to sort of buy into their stories about endless improvement. But I do think it is important to understand that a whole vocabulary of, of growth, of development, of improvement was organized around that, not, not merely as some kind of smokescreen, but also as indeed they were involved in, the, in this, this building of new kinds of, uh, of physical and material and productive worlds. So, yes, but. <laughs> Thanks very much, yeah. Ian. Uh, Ian Goff. Uh, you said at the start there's uh, two questions and one solution, but I'm not clear what the solution is yet. Um, it, it, one solution is, I suppose, that the state uh, assumes a bigger role in, in investment. Uh, that's been reduced massively over the last 30 years. If we look at the investment functions, I think Piketty shows how um, the state assets, uh, less state debt, was, was very positive, 50 to 100% of GDP. 30 years ago, and now it's turned uh, negative in a big way. So more and more of our future is being plotted by, by um, private companies, and, and they're interested in, um, through advertising, and stimulating more and more wants, which become increasingly pointless, uh, and more and more divorced from, from human needs. So uh, there's, uh, that would be one route, I suppose, is, is, is the socialization of more areas of of investment. Uh, another one might be to use the financial sector itself. Uh, Nick Robbins at the LSE, Professor of Finance, um, he's very keen to argue that finance is much more fungible, can switch quickly from one sector to another, uh, whereas industry is sort of tied up with fixed capital. And so the financial sector pension funds could uh, make a shift towards a, a decarbonized economy quite effectively. So those are sort of two routes. I'm not clear what your view is. No, I, uh, I think both of those um, are uh, part of a, a broader answer, I guess. Um, and um, uh, the state assuming control for, uh, or responsibility for forms of whether of investment or the management of things like railways that the private sector has proved itself not very good at, uh, at managing once again. Um, but I think what I'm trying to add to that is that um, many of those kinds of solutions um, leave in place a sort of conventional understanding of the corporation as belonging to something called the private sector. 
And I think, um, uh, and so there is a public sector, the state, that has its role that could be expanded and that it could do more of what uh, it's capable of. Uh, and then um, there's a private sector which will continue to exist. That notion of a private sector, of the corporation as something that, solves, that serves a, a private purpose, um, uh, seems, seems to, to me um, where there's much more room to open up a debate and a set of political questions. Both to see how that um, uh, rather narrow understanding of what the powers of incorporation were, um, and to think about um, uh, other modes of uh, defining the purposes of, um, of corporate life. Um, this is taken up a little bit by this new book that I think is just out this week that I've only read the reviews of by the, the former um, uh, director of the side business school. Yeah, the one reviewing the FT, yeah. Jonathan Derbyshire. Yeah. Jonathan Derbyshire, yeah. Uh, he reviewed it or he? He reviewed it. Yeah, yeah. he reviewed it. Um, uh, I may think of the name in the moment. And, and one of the things that I understand from the reviews that, that um, is, is laid out there is that even today there's actually a multiplicity of different models of what a business firm is. And um, I think he's particularly interested in those businesses that are actually owned by trusts, typically trusts set up by the family that originally founded them, and that rather than selling on their shares, so the examples of this are Siemens and three or four others, and of course one has uh, some examples in the, in the UK of this too. Um, and there's actually all kinds of research done showing the different kinds of both economic but also political role played by firms that um, answer to a trust that has a set of goals other than simply profit maximization. It's not that uh, the business doesn't have to um, make a return on its investment, but that that is encapsulated within a larger set of, um, of political goals. Now, I don't have any one proposed solution to this. I, I think what's more interesting is, is to try and enlarge the debate about what a corporation is, what its history is, how it came to have these kinds of powers, firstly. And secondly, to understand that its particular power is this mode of um, extraction from the future. And that if that is going to be um, the kind of power that comes with the right to uh, limited liability, the selling of stocks on, on publicly, in publicly traded uh, exchanges and so on, then um, our future is at stake in this, this particular form of, of political organization that has come into being over the last century, century and a half. Um, you asked about the, the financial sector and the sort of relative fungibility of, of finance compared to the fixed capital of business. I don't know how far, I mean obviously we're, we've moved into an age of um, uh, IT and so on in which um, a vast amount of, of capital in all kinds of businesses is, is, is in that sense, uh, much more fan fungible than the model of old industrial-based businesses. But um, uh, there has been, as I'm sure you know, uh, since particularly since the 2008 financial crisis, a very interesting debate about, um, about the very nature of money. Um, triggered, of course, by quantitative easing, because if governments in the U.S. and Britain could suddenly, or their treasuries could make available um, these vast um, sources of funding, where did that come from, and why was that not like 
government spending, and the Bank of England was one of those that had to actually publish an explanation of what money is and how, where it comes from and how it's created, which is different from, I'm told, anything you will find in any economics textbook unless you go to a few heterodox economists um, uh, because of the rather limited view of money and its sources that, that circulate in, in mainstream economics. So I think there's a lot of interesting debate to be had about finance the, and, and, the, and the creation of money, the, the corporate and banking creation of money that is the source of 90% of the money that's created um, at the same time. Okay, thanks. Let's um, move to some more. Yeah, if I could, uh, come down here and then... Yeah, should we take a few questions? Yes, that would go to him, So make sure we get them in. So one here, one here, and then Yulia here, and then I'll come up to the back. Hi, Bianca Stevens. Um, there was a passing comment by Noam Chomsky where he said the per pound spend to prevent climate change will be more than the per pound spend to deal with the consequences because of the changing nature of technology. And that's why people tend to shy away from dealing with it now and assume that the future will deal with it better. Do you think that's a reasonable theory slash approach? So the per pound spend will be more coping with it than not coping with it? Um, it's more to prevent it than to cope with it later, which is why they choose not to prevent it. It's a question of how you discount your net present value effectively. Yeah, yeah that's right. And, and just hit uh, Lucy Chris, Head of Corporate Partnerships here at the University. Um, first of all, thank you for explaining uh, to me for the first time in my life what a share is. I'm now going to be able to fully understand that extraction of value from the future, so thank you. Um, I guess you mentioned at the beginning, near the beginning of your talk, um, not wanting to seem particularly negative about the corporation, and maybe it's just myself reflecting today. Obviously, it's quite a big vote that's happening this evening, and... Um, you know, thinking about these big issues like climate change, conscious as well that we're here at a university where we're educating people that are going to be going out and running these corporations potentially in the future. Anything particularly positive that you wanted to share? <laughs> Any kind of <laughs> reflections that could maybe make us leave here with a bit of a spring in our step? And then let's uh, take Uli as well. Um, if the future and indeed increasingly the present, as you mentioned, um, is the capitalization of individuals, um, of human life, um, then does that, uh, but does bringing the future into politics actually mean giving a more direct role to individuals um, through means such as direct democracy, which as you mentioned in the digital era might actually become feasible? Yeah, do you, do you want to yes. take those, Tim, and then we'll go for some... Right. So the uh, Chomsky's argument about the per pound spend um, uh, being um, more if, uh, now than if we wait. Um, I mean, uh, of course, that's very hard to calculate because one doesn't actually know um, uh, the consequences, the tipping points. There are you know, consensus estimates of... Of, of consequences, but um, perhaps particularly difficult to calculate costs going forward more than um, uh, the immediate period. Um, so um, I think the one way to understand that, um, that it might actually make business sense to wait um, and to let the calamity unfold and then address it uh, at a more opportune moment, 
is that, um, of course, we've um, we invented this thing called the economy, and then we came up with a way of calculating and measuring it that made no distinction between beneficial and harmful expenditure, um, and that, of course, excluded all kinds of costs um, from the calculation of uh, GDP and thus of our collective sense of, of social improvement. Famously, of course, things like pollution um, and other environmental costs. And, uh, one of the ways of organizing politically is to try and get more and more of those costs included in um, the calculation of not just GDP, but of, of business costs, so that um, externalities um, that are gotten away with become internal to the calculation of costs. So uh, it, it seems to me that what one's got to get away from is the notion that there is some sort of neutral thing, neutral thing called price against which we can cost alternatives. Because price is constructed politically, um, as that example suggests. Um, because um, uh, price, value, um, and out of those collectively, GDP does not take into account um, uh, extensive human suffering, um, because a, a, a an ecological disaster can actually be extremely good for GDP if it leads to, uh, you know, if large-scale flooding or hurricane damage leads to vast uh, rebuilding. You can actually have an increase in expenditure and employment and so on. So it seems to me thinking that we can make decisions about um, how to address climate change on the basis of a price system is a very flawed starting point. I don't think that's what Chomsky's suggesting we do, though. It might be a, a useful explanation for the inabilities to act. But in general, to me, it's part of this problem that the kind of the public purpose of the corporation is uh, that was originally, as I suggested, a very important part of, um, uh, of, of what the very right to incorporate included um, has been lost, you know, and even at the level of, of, of the calculation of, of um, uh, of, of what a, a corporation or a business firm does in our world. Um, Lucy, for the students, um, no, I didn't want to be entirely negative because um, whatever happens, uh, we're going to continue to live in a world of um, uh, where large and very powerful businesses are a very important part of our collective um, uh, community. And I don't think I'm not one of those who thinks that sort of demonizing one's opponents is a good way to proceed and make political progress without, for any, without wanting to minimize um, the, the consequences of business decisions and the way they're taken. But I would think that one of the ways if one wants to be a, a force for good and for change in the world is actually to go into business and start trying to work on these things um, from the inside. I had a very interesting discussion earlier today with... Um, uh, colleagues here, um, which uh, um, mentioning the example of working with a corporate social responsibility officer, where are you? Um, uh, not the officer, but the... Um, and clearly the, the corporate social responsibility officer wanted the academic input to be able to improve his own position and his own arguments within the firm. So, you know, you can work on these things um, 
from inside, perhaps in a very beleaguered way, um, but there, there is still work that can be done at, at every level. And I think um, you know, the majority of students are going to go into those kinds of lives. Um, and I think preparing for them and preparing them to think about the nature of the corporation, the forms of, of corporate power we live with, but this underlying sort of history of the corporation as this originally public body that has been privatized, um, the history of the variety of other kinds of forms, corporations with a social purpose that, that exist out there or that could become the form that their businesses take, seems to me is much a, a more important work to do than just saying, um, no, no, drawing attention to the evils of, 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 of big business. Um, uh, does um, the fact that capitalization now happens through the very um, process of transforming individual human lives mean um, one consequence from that should be more forms of direct democracy, um, uh, a, a more direct role for individuals? Um, I, I think that's a very interesting question. I'm, I'm not sure how to think about it. I think, um, I mean, I think we all know we need um, an increasing number of forums and opportunities in which um, democratic debate can happen, partly because so many of the sort of national forms of debate are compromised by who owns the press and, and, and things of that sort. And the more... Um, one can organize political debate, I would have thought, um, where uh, the, the different stakeholders and actors are, are, are drawn together. Um, uh, that seems to me uh, something that we should be you know, very much thinking about and working towards. Uh, where that corresponds to direct democracy, um, I, I, I think is... Um, uh, I, I, th I think I would say that the important question is to be open to the multiple forms that democratic politics can take. And uh, that includes uh, the diversity of forms. It includes the ability to take forms of direct action. I mean, one of the things in my book, Carbon Democracy, that I wanted to draw out is the, um, the significance of forms of political confrontation um, uh, that were, played a vital role in the rise of democracy in the first place. It was coal and the fact that coal workers could sabotage the supply of energy to an entire country because uh, by the late 19th century, particularly when coal was used to produce electricity, suddenly the entire energy system of the country had these sort of choke points that it hadn't had before with more dispersed forms of energy before. And you could actually work on those choke points. Um, so uh, forms of democracy are not only uh, uh, necessarily about, or, or the production of, of, of democratic lives are not only about um, forms of direct control. They're also sometimes about the ability to say no, the ability to obstruct, the ability to refuse certain kinds of um, consequences. But I think your point about demo direct democracy is certainly part of that. Can, can you just say a little bit more about that, Tim? Because um, it, it is very striking, the introduction, or the introductory of the first chapter to your book, Carbon Democracy, where you trace this link between the ability of miners who have to go underground to, put, to dig coal to go on strike and stop doing that, the ability of railway workers to stop moving the coal across 
railways the ability of dockers to stop unloading it at docks you know, can have a, and if you think about working class political movements those groups of workers are always in the vanguard they're always the most militant and political and then you associate oil with the suppression of democracy the fact that it can be taken out of the ground without much human labor the fact that it can be moved in different ways relatively easily across continents you can change where your pipelines go you know you can refine it in different locations and you associate oil with a suppression of democracy and indeed in 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 a very striking argument at the, towards the end of the book where you say actually it's not there isn't a conflict between islamic movements in the middle east and modern capitalism Oil and Western capitalism has been critically dependent on the support of conservative reactionary religious movements for, its, for the main maintenance of a sort of um, legitimacy in those societies. Mm -hmm. um, what then, where does that take us when we think about, when we try to think about sources of energy beyond fossil fuels, beyond coal and oil, and in particular more decentralised forms of energy production and distribution? And in your book, you're... you're you, you sort of, um, I wouldn't say you're pessimistic, but you don't tend to sort of, you don't allow the argument to be an energy determinist one that says, okay, well, here's a future that, that is decentralized and democratic. But there must surely be potential for decentralized renewable energy systems to be associated with to help produce forms of democratic politics, which are perhaps better than 20th century carbon democracy. Yes, um, I, I don't think, I, I didn't want the implication of the book to be, you know, you tell me your source of energy, I'll tell you how democratic you are, um, because it's obviously a, a, a more complex story, and part of it is actually the, the, the sort of hinge between coal and oil, because one of the things oil partially allows is for the West to sort of export its, its problem with democracy, that is the sense that, that certain recalcitrant groups are making too many demands, because you can open up an alternative source of, of energy. Um, and of course, that happens also with gas and put the coal miners in their place. Um, so it, it's often that interface between different sources of energy that's um, important. I also wrote the book, but, you know, I started thinking about it at the time of the, 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 the US-British invasion of Iraq and the arguments that we're going to go there and teach them how to be democratic and give them the sort of culture and the mindset. This absurd idea that democracy is about a mindset, as if people, you know, most people in most places didn't actually want to find a way to um, produce a, a, a better life for themselves as best they could, and that I wanted to find a way to tell the history of democracy in the West that was not based on enlightenment, of people realizing suddenly that they could be decent human beings when they never were before. And so this history of energy was, was a way of, of getting at that kind of argument, that it's about that ability to, you know, sometimes just to say no, to have an effective voice, even if the voice is saying no, and how you construct that speaking machine um, as it were, not how you get some consciousness in your head. So to come to your question about um, the energy transitions underway and what um, uh, the move from um, fossil fuel-based to, um, to other kinds of uh, more distributed, more decentralized. Um, as I say, I don't think there's any simple answer to that. Um, uh, the most important answer is that we have to understand that what's at stake in that is, yes, of course, the future of the planet, which is big enough, but also the future of, of ways of organizing life collectively, because those have been so decisively shaped in the fossil fuel age by um, these different kinds of energy relationships. 
Um, uh, and I think, again, knowing as much as we can about the history of that, I focused on coal and oil, but um, uh, you know, electricity production, the whole movement in the 19th century to municipalize and take local control of the provision of utilities that was a very important part of sort of the democratization of British cities in the, in the 19th century and that's repeated in a, a different kinds of ways in, in, in US politics. That at that kind of level of who controls the, the electricity system as well as its source of energy. Again and again, these are places where politics is being worked out. It's again a sort of question of whether direct, certainly of more local forms of, of democracy. And um, so that's the kind of thing at stake in decisions being made about uh, future sources of energy. I, I think it's, in, it, 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 it's certainly the case that um, um, the concentration of uh, dependence on two or three key sources of energy, and above all oil, because oil was so transportable, produced this extraordinary phenomenon of the multinational oil corporation with its extraordinary levels of power and influence globally, but also in the domestic politics of countries that, that were home in some sense to those corporations. Um, you know, it cannot be but a good thing that that is broken up. But at the same time, to the extent that um, the control of renewable forms of energy is not equally centralized. Um, at the same time, we shouldn't assume that just because the control of energy is decentralized, we therefore have a happy democratic life. This is not the case because we used to live with very decentralized forms of energy before the rise of fossil fuels when our energy came from the sun and through the growth of grasslands and, and fields and um, uh, trees and firewood and uh, production of animals. and it was possible to actually organize some pretty undemocratic forms of politics on the basis of that very renewable um, uh, set of energies. So, no, there is no energy determinism, but there is, a, a, I think, a very important sense that the sort of energy, energy engineering of our forms of democratic life and their future development are at stake in, in, in quite sort of prosaic decisions about ownership, supply routes, um, and that kind of thing. Great. Let's let's take a, a final round of questions. If we, um, if I missed anybody up here, sort of the lights make it hard to see. Uh, yeah, gentleman here, and then. I very much enjoyed your talk. Thank you for that. Um, you. I just wanted to ask about your views on why the corporations have got to where they are. Um, it seems to be quite easy to demonise them to an extent, but to think about how they've actually achieved what they've achieved and the role that's been played in that by the alliance of consumers and politicians. Um, consumers who've been very happy to take on more debt to satisfy their expectations today rather than waiting until tomorrow. Um, consumer debt is now higher than it was before the start of the recession. And politicians who've been very happy to satisfy and drive up consumer expectations by making ever wilder promises about what they can do and then increasing national debt to satisfy its expectations. And I think that it'd be interesting to know what you think about how those drivers have caused the rise of the corporation. It's not just the corporation, they've, they've had some willing victims. Yeah. OK, 
Okay, good. And that's um, was there one further behind? Oh, I missed somebody. Sorry. No. Okay. We'll take. Do take that one. There's a the hand oh, up. Sorry, there is a hand up there. Sorry. I, I, yeah, I couldn't see. Sorry. I'm trying to get the mic to me. Yeah, we're in the spotlights here. Hi. Um, I was. You talked about the future, and I was wondering what kind of temporality you were. Uh, referring to, whether it was the perceived temporality, I mean, in different parts of the world, they would have different understanding of time and um, different conceptions of the future. I mean, our conception of the future today is very different from the conception of the future 30 years ago. Um, I mean, the way we can try to convince people that, you know, they need to tighten the belt, you know, for the future generations, I'm not sure it's working anymore than, it, you know, it used to work, but now I'm not sure it's working very much. Um, so I was wondering about that. Uh, I mean, I, I got it that you want to talk more about the material conditions and you talked about the railway, but I think when you talk about the economy or the market, then the market is often seen as a subject. You know, we talk in the name of the market. So I think here you're flipping more into the ideological side rather than into the material side of things. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well, um do you want to take those two? Then? Yeah, sure. So um, the question about, uh, again, about the, the, the role of consumers and the politicians as willing victims. Um, uh, so I agree with your starting point that, that it won't be productive simply to sort of demonize the, um, the corporation as the source of all our evils. And part of what I'm trying to do is open up a, uh, or be part of a, a broader conversation about the role and the purpose and the history of, of the corporation. Um, uh, so I, I would go along with, 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 with you on that and um, absolutely understand that um, uh, forms of consumption and um, forms of government regulation are equally part of the issue. I, I think it would be, uh, I wouldn't want to draw from that the conclusion that, um, you know, everyone's a bit to blame because one would want to, um, first of all, understand, you know, from a sort of material, socio-technical point of view, the history of these forms of credit. Um, till the 1970s, only a very small elite of the population was ever allowed to have a credit card because um, there weren't the ways of reliably scoring the credit reliability of um, the rest of the population in part. And one of the things that had to be developed was the, the, the algorithms, the computer technologies, and so on, that made it possible to extend um, credit scoring to uh, almost the entire population and therefore begin to uh, then extend these forms of credit um, to, uh, to, um, to, to almost the entire, um, uh, all, all social classes. Um, so to me, that's not a question of blaming one or the other, but understanding that very specific technical history. So it's, it's not a question of um, suddenly discovering a sort of new level of greed, but rather um, of wanting to know uh, this history of different ways of producing uh, futures and relationships to futures, of which the history of credit cards, um, the history of mortgages and second mortgages, and all these things are a part. Um, 
those are other forms of corporate action, whether it's the credit card industry, whether it's advertising industry, whether it is um, uh, the, the creation of entire worlds of consumption um, that corporations themselves have been deeply involved in. Um, uh, so I don't think one sort of gets away from the history of the corporation, even if one understands that there are many uh, actors involved in that rather than just a small group of large business firms. Um, so the drivers, yes, uh, are, are multiple, but I'm still, I'm still continually struck by Keynes's quote that I mentioned in passing, that um, you know, if, if things go the way they were going by the 1930s, even taking into account the crash of 1929, we would not need any economists today because we would have reached such a level of plenty. And I think we have to continually ask why we haven't, despite the incredible role that can be played by the organization of consumer desire, um, why we haven't been able to um, uh, achieve, maybe not the world he sketched out in that essay, but a much higher level of, of general and collective well-being, um, which of course has multiple stories beyond the one I've been um, uh, mentioning today. Um, then the, the second question was about, um, well, actually it was two parts. One was about um, the perception of different understandings of time, different cultures and so on. Um, and the other was about the market and moving from the material to the ideological. Um, I, there, there's, there's lots of interesting things to say about um, uh, different experiences and perceptions of time. I suppose what I'm trying to contribute to that way of thinking is that um, uh, first to have a slightly more sort of technical sense of, of how experiences of time are produced. Um, uh, that it's not just broad processes of cultural change, but things like the construction of, of, of stock markets, for example, that produce new relationships to the future. The second thing I'd say is that uh, the view I sketched around capitalization is actually a rather different one from the standard accounts we have of sort of time and modernity. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm simplifying things too much, but we tend to think of um, modernity either as the great acceleration of time and the experience of the ever-speeding up of processes and the concomitant sort of breaking of our relationship to a more timeless or stable past. Um, or we think of time uh, under modernity as something that... Uh, um, uh, that becomes chaotic, the other side of that speeding up, that it speeds up so much that we can uh, no longer control our futures and um, lose control of things. Now, I'm sure those are both uh, important aspects of the, the experience of time under modernity. Um, but I had something slightly different in mind with this particular history of capitalization. It's a very uh, technical and calculated mode of relating not just ideationally, though it includes that, but also technically and um, politically to the future. I'm also interested in the fact, I didn't really go into this, that you can then, you actually construct two relationships to the future through these modes of capitalization. Um, so one is that you, you find a way of valuing the future and discounting it and uh, establishing the, the, the present value of that future income. 
um, and you hope for a steady process of, um, of, of growth in that um, future income. But of course, having then organized a political financial process around um, the building of a relationship to the future, you then open that up to precisely forms of destabilization. Now, some of those are unexpected and cannot be controlled. Others are an inevitable part of political social life. But you open up this sort of second dimension of time, those who can then profit from uh, setbacks as much as progress. Uh, so you get the simultaneous arising of the, if you like, the sort of steady long-term, I mean simple investing terms, versus the short-term and the speculative. And you see that in many, I mean, I've talked about stock markets, but futures markets, same kind of thing. They often serve two different kinds of purposes of sort of stabilizing futures markets when they begin in agriculture. They're stabilizing a future for farmers, but they're also opening up a field for speculators. And the way you actually simultaneously are producing two kinds of relationship to the future seems to me an interesting part of that. So I'd agree um, that there are many different understandings of the future, but I, I'd stress even under uh, forms of capitalist modernity that there's no single experience of the acceleration or the chaos of time. Um, when I mentioned the market, I moved um, from the material to the... Um, the more ideological. If I did, I didn't mean to, and I hope you wouldn't read what I was saying that way. Um, I, it, it's a little clearer with the argument that I was making about the economy, and this was not an ideological argument about the economy, that people suddenly were sort of fooled into thinking that there was this thing called the economy when it wasn't really there. All that was there was, I don't know, businesses. It really was there. It really was built as an object of politics, and it was built out of... Um, real processes. Um, uh, I mentioned the importance of business accounts. So the, the invention of the automatic cash register was a very important part of the construction of this ability to calculate something called national income, just as um, the index card, as we call it, was a very important part of the ability to actually construct index numbers, because you could actually put I, probably nobody remembers what a Rolodex is anymore, but a, a little device in which you organize a lot of information in index cards that you can flip through quickly was invented by an economist as a way of constructing a uh, famous Irving Fisher who um, had lots of women employed in the basement of his house um, filling in index cards so that he could write a weekly column in the New York Times on prices. Uh, which made him very rich. Um, uh, you know, these were technical material processes and things like cash registers, index cards, and many, many other um, things. So, to me, the economy is not something ideological or even something ideational. It's all those things. It's devices, it's calculations, it's the movement of people and goods. I'd say exactly the same about the market, but the trouble is... Um, uh, we've ended up with this very sort of abstract and dematerialized notions of what markets are. It's interesting because this exact moment I was writing about in the um, 1870s, I was speaking about in the 1870s, the rise of the large business firm, is also the moment of the emergence of um, marginal utility theory and ultimately sort of modern microeconomics and the key role of people like um, Jevons and um, the, the French economist Valrat and others. And actually for Valrat in particular, who was a key uh, economist of this period, 
for him, the archetypal market, as he began to theorize in a new kind of way what a market was as this system of prices, was the stock market. The, the rise of the stock market as an institution, as a sort of central national institution, in the, the second half of the 19th century, made it possible for him to write a theory of the markets based on what happens in stock markets, as opposed to the longer and much more variegated history of the, the, the movements of commodities and prices of trade, which wouldn't have been talked about as the market in the abstract. But you get this abstraction. So yes, indeed, you do get, if you like, an abstracted and ideational uh, an idea-based account of what something is, but the point is to understand, is, is not simply to substitute a kind of more material and more technical account of that, but to understand what in that process of um, constructing a market, among other things, allowed abstraction, allowed ideation, so that you thought you had some sort of universal form called the market around which you could then construct theories. Right. Well, thank you very much in, indeed, Professor Mitchell. I think we've sort of come to the end of our, our time now. Um, for those of you uh, in social and policy sciences and policy, you'll know there's a seminar tomorrow lunchtime where we're going to be able to talk to Tim more directly in conversation about his work. For those of you here from Bath or from the, from the wider area, the next IPR event is on the 7th of February. We have Professor Nigel Shabbat coming to talk about um, the digital economy, these new giant corporations. We have a, a relationship with the Googles and Facebooks of this world, so please do look out for that and come along to it too. But can I ask you to thank Professor Michelin in, in the usual way for his excellent presentation and literacy. Thank you, Tim.